Today's podcast has a content warning. Our guest references her own spiritual practice in the context of our conversation. Join me in welcoming Mary Van Geffen to today's episode of the podcast. You know, I got to know Mary because one of you introduced us via direct message on Instagram. I took one glance at her very active account and was utterly delighted by her personality, her fashion sense, and her amazing reels. For those of you who know Mary, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm looking at her right now. Her picture has gorgeous red earrings and a bright turquoise top and her fiery red hair. Mary is an international coaching expert for parents of spicy ones. She helps people who are highly competent in life, but overwhelmed by the challenges of parenting, to lean into the discipline of staying calm. She helps them cultivate warmth and tenderness, all while trying to wrangle the fiery future of their tiny CEOs. Mary helps parents build the skill of self-compassion. She offers online courses and one-hour classes to help parents gain confidence to choose gentle, respectful parenting, especially if they weren't raised that way. Mary is a certified simplicity parenting counselor and professional co-active coach. She brings her life coaching and teaching skills to her community every day. Welcome, Mary. I am so glad you're here. Hi. Oh my goodness. I am really excited to interview you. Thanks for joining the podcast today. You are so welcome. I feel like we're we're meant to be best friends. And for now, we'll just be internet people. But one day. I, I so agree. It was one of my followers who actually first put me on to you. And she said, you guys need to meet. You're my two favorite Instagrammers. And I hopped on your page and was suddenly completely smitten with your content. It really speaks so clearly and vibrantly to your audience. When did you start posting to Instagram? Speaking of, <laughs> mm. I I started coaching like one-on-one way back in 2011. I feel like it's been about five years. Yeah. Uh, but in the last three years, it's been like, this is my job. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm planning for it and bringing a lot of more um, intentionality to it before it was just like, hey, I feel like talking about this. Yeah, no, it's very clear that you do bring a lot of intentionality to your space. I love it. So the reason that I invited you here is because most of my audience spends a lot of time with their children. They are home educating parents who don't get a break. And some Mm. of them have the kinds of kids that you like to talk about the most. These are children you like to call trademark name, even spicy children or spicy ones. I wondered if you could just begin by first telling the audience what the word spicy means. I mean, it's usually a cooking term. So when you're talking about it in the context of a child, what do you mean by that? So I mean it in two different ways. I mean it one in their temperament. They, um, you know, on the temperament scale are very extreme on a lot of the attributes. They express themselves in big and dramatic ways. They aren't afraid to take up space. They're constantly moving. They hurt folks unintentionally. They feel things so intensely. They go from zero to 10. 
they're louder than is appropriate and they just have this zest for life and this energy to spare. And they can also use really powerfully mean words that wound you and beautiful wounds, wounds, beautiful words that delight you. And they're often very aware of other people's feelings, but then they'll also be incredibly sort of um, lack of perception of others' feelings. And they powerfully negotiate all the way up until when they lose hope and they melt down. They're very <laughs> yeah. comfortable. Yeah. They're very comfortable setting boundaries with adults. Um, and they stake true to themselves. They're more worried about pleasing themselves than others. And they also are really highly sensitive and observant. They'll notice that you moved a chair a few inches or that you're in a bad mood before they've actually met you that morning. And they really can't be consoled physically very well, the spicier ones. And they can also be incredibly sweet and caring and loving. They're they're just a lot. So spicy sounds like it covers the range of behaviors that parents sometimes find challenging to parent through. Uh, would you say that being a spicy child is more descriptive or is it something that is actually diagnosable? So in other words, are we talking about kids on the spectrum or ADHD or kids who are HSPs, highly sensitive persons? What do you think? Or is it a mixture of all the above? Some kids have some of these traits, some actually have diagnosable um, uh, special needs. I want to answer that a few ways. One way is that sometimes spicy is determined by the parent and I'll just say the mom, because that's who I work with mostly, the mom and her limitations, childhood wounding, high sensitivity. So a lot of times, yes, your child's spicy, but you're bringing your own level of spice by really being controlled by needing things to be a certain way, having this, um, there's things you haven't worked through that are making the experience much spicier than it needs to be. So that's a whole area of spiciness. And then I did a poll once and it was something like, if you think your child is spicy, 50% had some kind of neurodivergent diagnosis. Wow. And, but of all the ones that had a diagnosis, 80% found the experience to be spicy. So I need some kind of Venn diagram to explain that, but it doesn't have to be a diagnosis. And Gosh, yes, isn't that the spiciest of situations where you, in the end, you cannot control this human being and their loyalty to themselves and their own soul far outweighs their desire to please you and follow your rules. And that can be, that is generally neurodivergent on some level, isn't it? Well, perhaps I am really curious about this because I had a parent once tell me that she had four strong-willed kids. And of course, in the 90s and early 2000s, we use the word strong-willed to describe spicy. Uh, and my audience who's been around me for a while will probably know this story. But at the time that she called me, I said, well, explain to me what you mean by strong-willed. She said, well, I've got this great homeschool plan and every morning I wake up and I get ready to execute it. And all four of my kids resist. They're angry, frustrated, giggly, tickling each other. And I just paused and I said with as much gentleness as I could muster, is there any chance these four children have a strong-willed mother? <laughs> and she paused. She said, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's just highly unusual that all four kids would struggle with this. Meanwhile, it sounds like the most inflexible person in the equation of all five of you is actually you. Well, given the truth. Yeah. And she paused and she said, 
I've never thought about it, but I feel like if they would all just do the plan, we'd all be so much happier. And I said, well, I know you would be, but if they thought the plan would make them happier, they'd already be doing it. Mm. And then she really paused and she said, well, help, (laughs) you know, like, what do I do now? And so when you talked about this, this parenting piece, sometimes the spiciness might be a projection. Do you think that's true? Sure. Yeah. A projection or a repression. There's Mm. a lot of women I work with who are horrified and then slowly become in awe of the fact that their child asks for what they want Mm. and their child goes to the beat of their own drum because the mom's whole life, she has been conditioned to do the right thing, to be nice, to consider other people over her own self. And so there's a bit of a spiritual discipline that goes down when you stop combating the fact that your child won't do what you want and you start to realize, what do I want? Why, you know, and and also you have to die to the part of you that really wants to look like the perfect mom and be the person that people feel like, oh, she's got it all together because her children are an extension of her. I don't believe that. I think amazing mothers can have highly defiant children. Oh gosh, that seems like it needs to be on a quote card. Amazing mothers can have highly defiant children. I feel like we just need to pause and really take that in. So often we measure our motherhood by the behavior of our children. We validate ourselves by seeing that they are a reflection of our own imagined outcome. What does it look like to be an amazing mother of a defiant child, Mary? Mm, It's prizing um, connection over control. I just got off the phone. I was supposed to be coaching uh, a new person to me uh, and on the phone ended up a husband. And and I I mostly coach um, women and he was saying, I go in and I, um, you know, there's these big feelings and I go in to fix it and I go in to, uh, you know, figure out and problem solve. And we can sort of let down some of that to, to put those things out of our backpack of responsibilities is it's not about fixing and controlling and um, getting and motivating. It can just be connecting. And so choosing connection over control, you really can't hold both. So you're not going to live in the world of first-time compliance, which would be amazing. I'm so jealous of those people with wallflower limiting, you know, gorgeous lambs that say, this is what we're working on today. Well, I thank you, mother. You know, you see them in the movies. Why aren't they in my house? Oh my goodness. I remember so vividly when my oldest son, Noah, was two, two and a half And uh, he only knew how to go in the opposite direction of me. So if we were in a store, he was going the opposite direction of the cart. If we were in a playground, he was running towards the street. If we were at my apartment building, he was running towards the exit out to the big wide world outside safety. And so one day I noticed that I was criticizing in my mind the parenting skills of all the women that were in my building. And like a flash of revelation came to me, oh my goodness, if I am mentally criticizing everybody else, they absolutely are criticizing how I'm mothering Noah. So I'm going to go collect some advice (laughs) from what people think I'm doing that is not working. 
So I went to my one trusted friend and I said, you know, you watch me with Noah every day. What are you secretly thinking I'm doing wrong? What are you secretly wishing I was doing differently? And that she was humility to ask that. <laughs> she was so wonderful about it. She said, you know what? That is such a sincere request. I'm going to spend 24 hours thinking about it before I give you an answer. So she went back into her life. And a day later, she came back and she said, Julie, this is what I think it is. You limit Noah with your body and he needs to respond to your words. So when you say don't run out the gate, he needs to stop. You can't just stop him from running out the gate with your body. Look at you. You're seven months pregnant. You can't keep chasing him. And I said, okay, but what if I say the words and then he doesn't do it? Because of course I'd said the words thousands of times already. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, I say the words. He doesn't do it. <laughs> and she said, okay, well, maybe he needs a timeout. And I was like, all right, I, I guess I can try a timeout. So the next time he ran, I still had to stop him with my body. I carried him back to my house. I walked him into the bathroom. And then I said, okay, you have to stay in here now for a minute by the timer. And then I walked out of the bathroom and he followed me out of the bathroom. <laughs> and I thought, well, how do I get him to stay in the bathroom? Do I have to sit on him? But I'm not supposed to use my body. I'm only supposed to use my words. Now, this mom was mystified that this strategy did not work. Fast forward to today, she and I still know each other. Her oldest son and my son are about the same ages. And I said to her, do you remember that advice you gave me? And she goes, oh, what did I know back then? And I said, I have watched our two kids grow up and your son has been compliant his whole life to respecting authority and doing the expected course. She goes, oh yeah, I had no idea till my third child that there would be children who would not listen to the words of a parent. My mm -hmm. oldest child always did. And sometimes I think that is such a shock when you have a child and my oldest turns out to have ADHD. Of course, I didn't know that when he was two. I had no grid for how to help a child when all the mothers around me are like, he just needs to listen to her words. Mary, how can you help us when we are told that our children should just be responsive to our words? You just talked about that immediate compliance, what I used to call spank on command, right? Like you issue a command and if they don't obey, you spank them. That was sort of the uh, early homeschooling parenting advice back in the day, which I don't support at all. But what do we do if they don't? Here are words. How do we relate to these kids without relying exclusively on talking? I'm glad that you shifted from how do we address these naysayers? Because just like um, someone has opinions mm -hmm. about you doing an untraditional um, schooling and choosing the education that's right for you, people are always going to have opinions on your parenting. And we're just going to have to um, let that be about them and their issues and not us, which easier said than done. But part of having a spicy child is you have to stop caring what other people think and parenting for other people and parent for yourself. Um, things that we can do is really prize um, connecting before we direct. So Connect before um, direct. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, so coming in and 
you can't just cold call a spicy child. Like, hey, I'm going to need you to go here. doesn't work. You have to come in and show respect for what they're about, what they're into, kind of warm up, get some eye contact, maybe some physical touch, come into their bubble. And then we have earned, you know, the right to say, um, here's the vision. And enrolling them in that vision is important. Getting them to have as much leadership in it, like, hey, I want to make sure that um, we went tomorrow, you know, way, way ahead tomorrow when we had to get our, our family photos taken. This is what I'm thinking of. Of We're going to be doing blue. And I don't know if you like wearing this shirt or this shirt, you decide. And then what, what are some ideas you have for um, photos that you would like pictures of? Like they want to collaborate. They want to be the CEO. So rather than do what my mom did, which is say, I'm going to knock you down a peg or two, go ahead and promote them and start letting them be a part of the the leadership because they do have great ideas. They are artists, you know? Um, Another thing to really focus on is embodiment, like the opposite of what that lady was saying. Like you have to use your, your full body. And that starts with checking in on your instrument. Like our body is one of our greatest tools in parenting. And how's it doing? If you're unconsciously just moving towards directing and trying to move your kids to do this or that, and you haven't checked in on you, oh, wow, my stomach is completely clenched. I haven't had anything to eat today. Like just taking a moment to check in on your body. How am I doing? How do I want to setting an intention as you move into um, what might be a high powered charge situation? How do you want to be? Because the only person you have control over is you. You're in charge of everybody, but you're not in control of them. But you are. Great distinction. Great distinction. Yeah. And you're in charge of everybody. You have this righteous responsibility, but you are not in control. We're using our body, checking in with our own self. And that includes posture. How are our hands open or are they clenched? Um, Is there a slight frown on our face or are we relaxed? Are we lighting up when we see our child and they're seeing, because the spicy one is highly allergic to shame. And so if they sense that you don't like what they're doing, they're going to give it back to you 10 times harder. Um, because they just can't sit with this feeling that maybe they don't belong or they aren't enough. So there's using your own body, really checking in, checking your posture and how you're holding yourself. Are you kind of in a victim stance or are you in your queen, you know, um, grounded? And maybe if, if you're not in the best place, like cyclically, some of us, the week before our period, we're not meant to be doing a lot of heavy parenting. I love that. Uh, We're cyclical beings. We are, we see everything wrong in that time because of the the lack of estrogen. We are better served to be decluttering something than teaching our child how to behave because we're just going to be coming at a harsh, less relational way. So that's another way to kind of check in on on your body. The the other part is um, using your body when you're setting um, some boundaries and um, that means bringing your full physicality to a situation. If I'm going to say, no, you got to take your shoes off to come in here. Um, I can't lob that across the room. Hey, take your shoes off. Oh, you didn't take your shoes off, right? I've got to stop what I'm doing, get with, get close to them, um, physically next to them, look them in the eye and say, we take off our shoes before we come in. 
And now they've got our full physicality. We're there. We aren't trying to multitask. They can see our eyes. We can see theirs. Now they can receive it. But so often this um, brilliant gifted child is in their own world doing their own thing. Instead of getting angry that they aren't listening to you, maybe they never heard it. You didn't slow them down and bring them you know, along. So physical proximity is really big. I really love that because I think so often we are lobbing commands. One of the things I like to share with my uh, followers is that we often look over their heads instead of in their eyes when we're talking to them. So we're looking beyond the child into the space where we want an action to occur. So take off your shoes before you come in the living room. We're looking at the living room that we're trying to protect from the shoes. We're not looking at the child who needs to take the shoes off. And often I think we spend ourselves in the relationship as command central. We have a whole set of commands we're getting ready to issue throughout the day. And the child can be anywhere in the house or in visual proximity. And it's shouted near them, but it isn't directed to them. And so then when they resist, we end up with this feeling of disrespect when really, like you said, we don't start with that position of respect. We are starting almost like we're governing some kind of electronic control that will make our child to obey. Does that sound right to you? Is that similar to what you're talking about? Yes. And what's missing in that robotic command center is warmth and relationship, which is what gives us the right to make these commands. And so um, really delighting in your child, that's your number one job. Like there's not many people in this world that are going to care as much about um, just the care and keeping of this human and they need to believe you like them. So you can be super competent and have a great lesson plan and have merchandise, everything out on the table. But if they can sense that in some level, they disappoint you continuously and there's this exhaustion and frustration that you're emanating, it's all for naught. So put it on hold and figure out how to delight in this child. And if I was going to give homework to the listener, it's like write down 10 things that are brilliant right now about this kid. Mm. 10 things that make your eyes get a little misty when you really marinate in in the beauty of this child. Wow. Come back to that. Yeah, I can really feel that just as you say it, because if we are in a position of disconnection, the quickest way to reestablish it is through admiration, admiring that child for who they are and what they bring to the table, as opposed to expecting them to connect to you to show you that your offering was sufficient. I think a lot of times we think connection is giving a hug, but if the child doesn't want a hug, giving a hug can feel coercive. If the mm. child needs space from you, sitting right next to them might feel coercive. But if from even a distance, you can imagine the beauty that is this person, your whole countenance will change when you look at that child and they will read it in your eyes and in your face not just in your actions, in your words. I love that advice. That's beautiful. What comes forward for me there is like saying a silent blessing over this kid. Like if you're just not getting along in this plane and everything you say is wrong and you're frustrated with them, stop talking and just start meditating on what is beautiful. And I like to say with my mouth closed, God bless you. Peace be with you. I love you. It's all true, right? You want you you love them. You want peace for them. Whatever your um, 
spiritual beliefs are higher power universe. You want that being to bless this child and to just, you can't really hold that countenance. God bless you. Peace be with you. I love you. And like, oh, this kid, right? There's many ways to get back to liking this child, but like, especially with ADHD kids, that is my number one advice that you would nurture your appreciation and like for this child. And it's hard when the kid is going around destroying everything in the house, is doing the opposite of what you're asking. It It is a big assignment. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's your number one job because the world can teach them the rest of it, but there's not really a replacement for this self-esteem and sense of belonging when a parent likes me. Happiest of holidays to everyone who celebrates anything in December. If you aren't yet a member of our membership community called Brave Learner Home, I invite you to join us. We're over 13,000 members strong. We have incredible conversations and resources designed just for you to have full success in your homeschooling life. Last month, I did a webinar on the myth of rigor and requirements. And that is up for replay now and perfect as a way for you to anticipate January when you re-up that homeschooling commitment. This month, I'm doing another webinar in December to talk about how to create your own annual solstice tradition. This is a tradition that I created during a dark period in my personal life, and it birthed a living tradition that continues today with my adult kids. This solstice tradition is not specifically religious in any way, but it capitalizes on the magic and habits of your homeschool. So if that's something of interest to you, I invite you to join Brave Learner Home. To learn more, go to bravewriter.com slash special dash offer. It's in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you inside. So let's go ahead and dive into the destructive child because it's one thing in Noah's case, he ran away from me. He climbed on the outside of a stairwell that was outdoors so he could have fallen to his death. You know, he did these sort of death defying uh, behaviors because he felt so secure in his own body. And he was actually quite skillful. And over time, I learned to really trust it and provide the accommodations and support that would allow him to explore in that way. But what do we do with a child whose work in the world appears to be destructive? Uh, I know a child who ransacks his mother's house routinely, comes home from school and in a fit will just pull all the books off the shelf, will break a brand new toy, uses just very big energy to express aggression. What does a parent do for a child like that? Mm. Well, I first want to admit that I don't have a child like that. Um, and the many of the people I serve do. And so we're constantly brainstorming ideas. The first question I would ask is, is that happening um, just as like a matter of walking in the door or are they, it has, has a limit been set and they're angry? So some kids are just destructive. Like my child growing up that my spicier one would step on my feet all the time and rip things up by accident. And it was just sort of a, a lack of, of knowledge of how her body worked, but also searching for proprioceptive input. Oh. Um, 
this feeling of feeling your body, feeling where it is in space. And we can give that to them um, in a more nutritious way through things like I love um, roly poly where everybody lays on the ground and you slowly roll over the, your child's entire body and then they roll over yours. Um, or maybe it's swinging a bat at milk jugs that you have tied up and it's a wiffle ball bat, like, like honoring this need to swing your body through the air and to have some controlled destruction. You know, is it, is it throwing ice at a wall? Is it putting pottery in a Ziploc and slamming it with a hammer? We have to have ways to move anger out of our body. And this child that seems destructive or is destructive um, really needs it. They need like two hours outside a day with heavy work, like wow. moving something across a field or um, digging up something like this child would be amazing if they were on a farm or in the jungle cutting through a machete. And and we've unfortunately are trying to put them in this domestic environment and it's not working. Gosh, I so appreciate those ideas. I remember years ago when I was first homeschooling, coming across a homeschooling mom who talked about a child who spent every day, an hour a day digging a hole in the backyard and the hole got super deep. It became like a 10 foot deep, 10 foot wide hole. And every day for an hour or two hours digging in the dirt. And she said to everyone else, it looked like a waste of time, except to the child. There was something about the discipline of being able to do this physical moving of earth, leaving a mark in the ground, discovering just how far they could take this practice that was actually releasing all kinds of energy. And I remember realizing I lived in a condo that had three feet of dirt and no place for my kids to play. Like there was literally nothing. There was no play equipment. There was a little bit of a green belt and a cul-de-sac and a driveway and these three feet. And I went and got shovels for my kids. I'm like, you can dig in this dirt. And they started making like a little road and um, places to run their Hot Wheels inside the dirt. We grew some flowers in that three feet of dirt. I just made do with what I had in Southern California. But it was sort of an amazing permission-giving moment in my life to hear that just the exertion was actually valid time use. So often we get stuck in this idea that it has to go somewhere, mean something, become something, point to a future career. And this mom was like, no, my son likes digging in mm -hmm. dirt. <laughs> and I think we miss out on these sort of natural ways of regulating emotions and bodies, don't we? Because we yeah. are looking for them to mean more than they need to mean. So all of those examples, I would never have thought of. I love them so much. The wiffle ball bat on the milk jugs and the clay pots inside of a Ziploc bag. My gosh, do you what have I, lots of I those ideas? I love those. Oh, good. <laughs> what I wish for that mom is that she had that padded wall that's underneath basketball um, hoops. Oh. And that would be amazing because this child wants to throw themselves against it and feel... Um, the 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 in the interoception the inside of what shifts when they have that like contact and it's so hard for us to take on that job so it can also look like hey come here i want i want to see if i can push you across the room and you're both have your palms to each other and you're pushing but i just i'm sending so much empathy to the ex physically exhausted or disabled mom who can't 
be that for her child, then you then we've got to get really creative because the exertion's going to happen. Yeah. So where do we want it to happen and how? Yeah. Which a lot of times sports can satisfy that for some kids. Uh, absolutely. Or acting or being in performance, uh, whether that's music or singing or piano playing. But when we're talking about this daily exertion, I, I often feel like our, you use the word domestic, but I feel like so many of our expectations of children are domesticated. We're wanting everyone to be polite, nice, and quiet instead mm -hmm. of understanding that there is a very short window of your life where you get to be that physically exuberant, right? Once you're an mm -hmm. adult, there is not a lot of room for it. Yes. Can you share an example of how your coaching has helped a parent-child team find new footing in their relationship? Are there some success stories that you're especially proud of or are good examples? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, my job is amazing. I, I only see a few clients a week now. Most of my work is like self-paced classes that you can take, but... Um, I have one client currently who said, you know, this, this seven-year-old boy, he, he pretended to hit me. He, he actually swung at me. And I said, can you show me how he did it? And it was like, it was play fighting. And I said, can I suggest that you would go, Ooh, oh, you got me. And that you would come back with a pretend punch to his stomach. And then you would fall back. And she said, oh, I, I, uh, okay. And then she came back the next week and she was beaming. She's like, he loved it. And we connected and she had been taking it personally and then decided to shift it to play. And there's so much we can change in our family when we pour either compassion on it or play on it. And in this instance, she just stopped making it mean something that it didn't. It wasn't disrespectful. It was a bid for connection. And I just listened to a great, um, the Gottmans were talking mm. about um, the art of turning towards your partner. And it's the same with a child that there's going to be all these moments where they bid for our attention or our attachment, or our connection. And we reject so many of them unknowingly. And a lot of times it can be behavior like sticking their tongue out at us. And we have this moment. Do you want to receive that as a bid for connection? Or do you want to nip it in the bud and come through as the controller? So in that moment, I might stick out my tongue and wiggle my butt. And now we've got some playfulness. So seeing things as a bid for um, some kind of attachment or relationship is really helpful. And not not every time we reject that bid, We've got more work to do to try to establish that foundation of a connection. Frequently, I'm wondering then if mothers or fathers, but I'm thinking of moms because like you, I work with a lot of women, are looking for their child to provide them with a sense of love and companionship mm -hmm. and closeness. And then the child's bids for connection don't match what the mother is expecting. Do you find that that's common? Yes, very common. And you'd you'd mentioned childhood wounding. And we really have to look at what we wanted as children and maybe mm. didn't get, and how it's not our child's job to give that to us now. I think we have an unconscious desire to finally get 
um, what we didn't get as as little people. And the more we can bring that into our consciousness, whether that's journaling what it was like to be little in your house or sort of talking to a friend about um, what you wish would have been different, we can get a sense of of that connection we're needing. And so often clients will come to me and I want this kid to be, to be kinder and to listen to me and to to make me feel like I matter. And really that starts with you, you Mm. mom, are you listening to you? Do you think you matter? Because if I say, if your child says, oh my gosh, I hate your purple hair and you don't have purple hair, you're like, oh, well, tomorrow will be green. It doesn't land. But when you think maybe I'm not lovable and your kid says, I hate you, you're the worst mom, suddenly you're set back and it's so dramatic and painful, but that's because you believe it, not your child. Your child's going to try all kinds of ways to um, get back their power and to have some kind of control over the situation. And we really can't take those harsh words um, personally. We have to look at what's the what's the human need underneath this inappropriate behavior. Amazing. It's also expecting children to have a level of codependency with you when you're asking them to help you feel secure in the world when the parenting task is actually the other way around. The job isn't for your child to accommodate your needs. It's for you to be a big enough container for them to explore and experiment with how they communicate, what their needs are, how they show up in the world. That's true. Especially with teenagers, I think the greatest gift you can get a teenager, give a teenager, is to be safe enough for them to reject. Yeah. So that you would pursue them, delight in them, and allow them to say, no, ew, gross, get away, and still have a smile on your face to be that safe because you're pouring into yourself. You have something else that's fulfilling to you beyond how they are, you know, going to treat you today. Yeah, that's going to go right into the 20s. So get good practice with teens. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just give you that foreshadowing. Uh, It is a teen's job, a a child's job to grow up and leave you. So we cannot build our own self-esteem on that child-parent relationship. Otherwise, we are literally forecasting for ourselves doom because they will leave. They will go live in someone else's house and it won't be yours. But what we can do, and I love how you said that, is become strong enough inside of ourselves to be a place they return to with joy, where they consider home a place they don't want to miss when the holidays come, when they consider home the best memories that they have of their childhood. And best doesn't mean necessarily only happy. It does mean emotionally safe or a place to return where they can be known as they are Uh, I love that. So if you were to pick an overarching principle that you often give to your clients, what would that be? Is there a governing principle for relating to a spicy child? The overreaching principle would be you're doing this right if you're connecting and that it is enough and you are in charge, not in control. and your effort should be in continually delighting in this child and going on the journey to heal the parts of you that feel most uh, impacted or challenged by this child because it's not them. 
Mm. It, I always I like the babysitter test. If if your sister could babysit your kid for a week and be like, yeah, it was kind of annoying they did this, but or and you would be enraged, um, then it's you. Mm. It's you and how you perceive them to reflect you, or it's you and how um you take things personally. So if somebody else would just kind of roll their eyes or not even notice, and you are mortified. That's about you. Wow. That's amazing. I am thinking about what you said there. It's really interesting. I do think that's one of the values of having, you know, healthier, kind grandparents because they can provide you sometimes with that larger perspective. Uh, I remember my oldest son, Noah, was really into heavy metal music when he was in high school. And we made the mistake at the time of trying to limit it and ban it and punish it and finally realized that was really fruitless. He was going to listen anyway, and we may as well join. But then Mm -hmm. that summer, my mom came and I was really embarrassed that he was listening to that kind of music. I felt this like second, secondhand shame, I guess, is how I would Mm -hmm. put it. And uh, a little bit later, I noticed my mom had said to Noah, hey, do you have the lyrics of that music that's playing in the background? And let me tell you, it was loud and very smashing and not the music my mother listens to. And about an hour later, I noticed they were gone. I didn't know where they were. And I went upstairs and I walked by Noah's room and the music is just coming out super loud. And there's my mom laying on her stomach on the ground next to her grandson, looking at the lyrics to Rage Against the Machine. And just having this full-on conversation about what it meant, why those lyrics were meaningful to Noah. And later she came back to me and just said, you know, wow, he really knows a lot about that band. And I thought, wow, if that isn't the modeling of a grandparent, somebody who had this infinite capacity to allow him to be who he is and not measure him against societal standards. And that really became kind of an underlying lesson in how I approached my children to really recognize that I can just lay on the floor next to them. It's not my job all the time to evaluate them. I can just mm-hmm. be with them. I know that my mother didn't like heavy metal music and that did not stop her from laying on the floor next to her grandson. Mm, that that story made me cry a little bit. Um, it's beautiful. I, I felt a couple things. One, I felt jealous because a lot of us did not have a, a mom or a grandmom who models um, what I would say was curiosity. Like she, instead of going to judgment, which we all do, it's normal. We've all got to judge within us. It's like good, bad, not enough, too much. She quieted that part of herself and said, let me get curious. Let me assume I don't have all the answers. Tell me what it's like to be you. And I'm I'm happy for you that you had that growing up. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I definitely feel very lucky that she was that kind of person. I love the phrase you just said, though, so I'm going to repeat it. Tell me what it's like to be you. I mean, that is, wow. Imagine you've got a five-year-old who keeps running away from you like I had. If I could have said, tell me what it's like to be you. You're in target with me. You want to go run away from me. Tell me what that's like for you. Why is that the way you want to experience target? How do we help you have the experience of freedom and exploration and hiding from me? And when Mm -hmm. can we do that? And when are places where that probably isn't going to work as well? (laughs) But if I just treat it as disobedience, I never get to find out what it's like to be a child who cannot stand being tied to a shopping cart and walking slowly through a store. That must have felt like torture for my son, who eventually, by the way, became a parkour urban gymnast. Like 
literally jumping off of roofs of buildings and doing flips down banisters. Like that's where he was headed at five. And he ended up doing that at 18. We can't always see that there is like this person trapped inside the body of a small little being that we're in charge of. And um, so being curious, tell me what it's like to be you. Oh, that gave me chills, Mary. I love that so much. Wow. Well, thank you for all of this wonderfulness. I just know there are going to be parents on here who are going to message me and say, how do I get in touch with Mary? She seems to know everything I need to hear. What can they do to find you? I'm still figuring it out, but um, well, I'm <laughs> big on Instagram, Mary Van Geffen, and I have uh, three different kind of foundational one-hour classes that if you're just kind of getting into this way of parenting, there's calm, there's kind, and there's firm. Those are three different classes. And then if you're ready for the big guns, join my Moms of Spicy Ones, which is an eight-week uh, group course where we do group coaching. And I just take you through the principles of um, turning more towards connection than control with this child, as well as some tips for getting them more likely they'll cooperate and want to collaborate with you. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you so much, Mary. We'll put your Instagram link and your website in the show notes for those who want to contact you. Thank you for joining me today. It was a pleasure. This is the part of the podcast where I ask you to leave a review. You can leave stars or words, whatever your choice is. If you've already left a review, thank you so much. You never know, Natalie might read yours one of these weeks. The truth is I love podcasting and I couldn't do it without you. I'd love your ideas for the next topics you'd like me to discuss on the show. To let us know, reach out to us via our SMS or texting number. That number is 1-833-947-3684. I know that's a mouthful. Don't worry, it's in the show notes. Simply text the word POD to be added to the podcast group And then just text us any ideas you have for future shows. We're already building a beautiful Excel spreadsheet with all your ideas. Hey, everyone. Natalie from the Brave Writer team here again with another five-star review. Today's comes from a cute name, Poncho Donkey. This is by far the most helpful podcast for my homeschooling journey. It also has a lot just for parenting in general. Julie has a special skill of putting me at ease while also encouraging me to do better, giving me ideas, but not overwhelming me. And that's saying a lot coming from me. She also is a deep thinker, clearly with honesty and integrity, as especially displayed in the episode, What Are the Risks of Homeschooling? I related very much to that one. Thank you so much, Julie. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going, think well, I'm rooting for you.